What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Alexa Weinbaum is a Division I athlete, student, and true inspiration from Connecticut. She began riding horses competitively at a very young age, and eventually pivoted to become a Division I collegiate runner. However, beyond Lexi's incredible physical prowess, her ability to overcome adversity, especially at a young age, is what stands out most. Her vulnerability, poise, and what came after fighting for her life will leave a lasting impression on all who listen. My name is Lexi Weinbaum. I am 23 years old. I'm from Connecticut. I am a lot of things. I'm a horseback rider. I'm a runner. I'm a psychology student studying to be a therapist. I do a lot of work in eating disorder advocacy and child abuse advocacy more recently. I run Division One track and field. And previously, I worked with horses as my job and took a few years off from college. I was always like a very typical kid. I dealt with a lot of the normal experiences that children have as far as bullying goes, struggling with friends. I finished middle school when I was 13 years old and I went into high school. I ended up graduating high school when I was 16. I got raised in a very religious family. My parents are great, but at that time they didn't really know what they didn't know. So if I were to say something like I was struggling with depression or anxiety or any of these things, it wasn't something that was really getting heard. When my parents grew up, that wasn't something that was ever talked about. This was happening in 2013, 2014. Mental health was not this huge conversation. I met John when I was 13 years old. He was about a year or two older than me. I was very taken to John from the get-go. I was kind of a lonely kid. I really wanted people to like me. I went to a different district than I was raised in as a result of a lot of bullying that had been going on because at that age, no one really knows who they were. So I think that he took to me right away and was interested in the fact that I didn't know who I was as a person yet. The very first times that I can remember really speaking with him, I remember being just super grateful that someone was interested in me, wanted to hear me talk about my life and wanted to be there for me. I got in trouble once for having a stress ball with me. He went and spoke to people about me having this stress ball to get it back for me because it had been taken away from me. 
I remember just being like, wow, that was so sweet. Like he is willing to potentially risk himself getting in trouble to stand up for someone else. People were always making fun of me and he was always the person to stand up for me, which made me think he was the most amazing person in the world. John introduces me to Sadie because I'm struggling to make friends. Sadie is about a year younger than me. I loved her. I was crazy about her. I thought that she was so beautiful. She was kind of everything that I wanted to be. She had so many friends. She was so cool. I always wanted to hang out with her. And this was a big problem for John because I would sometimes be hanging out with him and then I would want to go and spend time with Sadie because I was craving that girl time a few months into the relationship. I think at this point, I'm 14. We'd been in a relationship and I'd been talking to my friends about him doing some concerning things. We one time had a huge fight where he told me women don't deserve rights. They should never make more than their husbands. He was like, you need to make sure that you post something on your Twitter account. You need to make sure that you post that you're not a feminist so people don't think you're a feminist. The sexual assault started happening. It was only a couple months later. He, like a lot of teenagers, was very interested in experimenting with sex. I was not interested. I had said that right away. That didn't matter. Eventually, I was like, I don't want this to happen. And I said that. I was like, I don't want this to happen. But you're making it extremely clear that I can't stop you. It was the most sick thing when I think back to it. He was so obsessed with guns. I'm not even kidding. His entire public facing profiles were all just photos of him shooting things. One time he put pictures of me up on the range wall and he shot at them. And then he sent me those pictures. And he would be like, this is what happens when you don't listen to me. It's weird to explain that because I was way past being afraid at this point. I was just like, all right, that's how this goes. He yells at me. He's violent with me. He assaults me. And then we make up and I'm a good girlfriend again. I was so afraid of the physical and emotional violence combined with the fact that I was so young and I didn't understand. I lost so many friends at this point because from the outside perspective, you don't know what is going on and how badly I'm being abused. You're like, what an asshole. Like she's staying with this person who is absolutely horrific. Sadie was a person that I went to for comfort in that situation. She actually was very supportive of me. She would stand up to him and she was the person that actually told me, you are being abused. You need to get out. You should not be in this relationship. I told my school guidance counselor and they told me, all right, we'll look into it. And I never heard anything about it again. And that was the first time that I had reported it. Over the next couple of months, sometimes I would go down and talk to my school guidance counselor several times a day. I didn't really know that I could call the police. I didn't want them to tell my parents because I didn't know how my parents were going to react. My parents, they're amazing. They could not have been more supportive when they found out. I thought that I would be in trouble or something or that I was doing something wrong because that was what he made me believe. It was 2014, early 2015 at this point. He had calmed down with a lot of the physical stuff because he wasn't able to physically access me having been away. His parents would send them on months-long trips to Paris and to London. I remember being so happy. I was like, he's gone. And I knew that when he came back, he was going to be going off to boarding school. I was super excited because I was like, this is almost over. 
I am almost home free. I have a couple weeks when he gets back, then he's gone, and I can just let the relationship phase out. It's going to be great. When he went off to school, even Sadie was like, you're out of the relationship, Lexi. Like, it's over. And I was like, I think it's going to be fine. I really do think I can get over it. I was just picturing this world where I wasn't going to be abused. I would be so happy. A couple months before he went to boarding school, I had met Steve and Andy. Steve and Andy were all good friends of Sadie's. Steve was 20 years old at this point. Andy was maybe like 18, 19 too, like same age bracket. Sadie was 14. I'm 15. I didn't really have a lot of people that I could talk to and it was just so nice. We hung out quite a few times. Steve, Andy, Sadie, I, there were always a couple random people that popped in here and there. That's kind of when I got into experimenting with smoking and drinking. I wanted so badly to like impress them. My birthday is November 25th. The lie that I told my mom is that Emily wants to throw me a surprise birthday party. It's gonna happen at Sadie's house. I remember when she dropped me off at the house, she was like, call me if there's any issue. There was no surprise party. We had said we were going to the movie theaters to her parents. We were actually going over to Steve and Andy's house. We pretended that we're doing this for my birthday. And so we were gonna be seeing movies until midnight. I wanna say it was like nine or 10 a.m. at this point. They dropped us off at the movie theater. We wait for her parents to leave. As soon as they do, we pull up the location of Steve and Andy's house. It was like about a two to three minute walk. On our way over, she had said to me, you're gonna be smoking, right? And I was like, yeah. She was like, okay. And I was like, are you? And she was just like, um, I don't think so. I'm not really gonna do that today. I think maybe I'll have a drink. She asked me like three or four times, just double checking when we had gotten there, if I was going to be smoking. Probably the third or fourth time that she asked, I was just like, what if I don't want to? Steve lit up this bong and he had handed it to me and was like, ladies first. So I inhaled one singular hit and I started coughing. I remember seeing like this look of shock on his face. He looks over at Andy and at Sadie and I noticed them shooting looks back and forth to each other. And I was just like, what? He just laughs and he goes, let me get you a glass of water. I'm feeling a little bit weird. I'm gonna lay down. So I start laying back. I don't really know the timeline of how this happens, but I close my eyes. And then I started to hallucinate things that weren't happening. Like I was in a room with my grandmother. It started to be very scary. Rats were coming out of her head and I kept trying to wake myself up and I wasn't waking up. So I was like, what is happening? I'm confused. I can hear these people around me, but obviously I've just fallen asleep. I then start feeling hits. I felt a blow to my chest, my ribs. I'm like reacting to this stuff within what I thought was the dream. I remember like looking down and there was blood coming out of my hand. And in reality, I actually was bleeding. Someone kicked me. I started trying to kick back and fight back. And then I heard one of the guys, Andy say, yo, chill. I hear Steve say, chill, you're gonna wake my mom up. That happens and I start screaming. Steve comes and pins me up against the wall and he starts strangling me. I start hyperventilating and I'm trying to convince myself that this part is a hallucination and that I'm gonna come out of it, but it doesn't go away. A switch flipped in my brain and I was like, I'm going to die. I'm being murdered. 
I was trying to think of what to do. So I started hitting back and kicking. Pretty sure I bit him. I remember looking at the window. It's slightly open. I can open the window. We're about three stories up and I can jump out. And if I jump out, there's a chance that I will die or I will get seriously injured, but at least I will not have been murdered. If I don't die, then I'll get away because we're in a public area. Like someone's going to see this. The neighbors will call the police. Something will happen. Very quick thinking. But we were in the time of the iPhone 5. Everything was still like very glass, broke very easily. So I remember thinking to myself, I needed to protect myself. What if I shatter the phone screen on my phone? There was a glass table in front of us. I'll shatter it on the glass table and I will use it as a weapon. So I go to reach for my phone and then that gets taken away. He had a PlayStation or something in his room and I took it and I threw it. Just trying to divert his attention. Then I go to rush at this window. Andy grabs me and throws me back down on the couch, gets on top of me. Steve's mom comes into the room and she's like, what's going on up here? And he was like, nothing. Why do you have her pins down there? And he was like, because she's being violent. She's kicking and she bit me. She's just overreacting to weed, just having a hard time. And she was just like, Steve, you're already in enough trouble. I cannot have a girl die here. You need to get her off the property. And I think in her mind, I overdosed. And she was starting to see the reactions of an overdose. I said like, call 911, I'm gonna die, I'm scared. And she was just like, I'm not calling 911. We're not having anyone come to my house. You need to get outside right now. I wasn't waiting around. I sprinted down the stairs. Sadie ran down after me and grabs me and digs her fingernails into me. So I said, what happened? And she was like, you started having this panic attack. So she grabs me really tight and was like, we need to go back inside. And I said, no, 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 I'm not going back inside. And she was like, he's blowing up my phone. He was texting her, get her back here right now. And I remember there was a text that was like, you said that she wouldn't scream. This is all your fault. And she was like, Lexi, we need to go back. You're having fun. I was like, no, 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 I am not having fun. I'm not okay right now. I know what happened. You guys just hurt me. And she was like, no one hurt you. You are absolutely insane. And I was like, no, 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 look, I'm bleeding. And then she was like, I don't see any blood. There's no blood. I start running down the street and she chases me and grabs me by my hair and kicks me to the ground. My voice just starts getting louder and louder. I'm in a very busy city and I start screaming like, I'm going to die. These people gave me something. They don't care. They're hurting me. And so people naturally are getting concerned. I remember seeing people recording me and I was like, you're recording me. You're laughing like this is funny. I'm not okay. Please call 911. They just hurt me. They just attacked me. Look, I'm bleeding. Someone pulled over and was like, I'm concerned about her. I'm going to call 911. And Sadie was just like, no, 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 please don't. She's my sister. She's schizophrenic. I was like, she told me I wasn't bleeding and I am bleeding. She was like, Lexi, that just happened two seconds ago when you just fell on the ground. My brain is now doing gymnastics. Why the fuck does she want me to be lying so bad? Why is she telling everyone I'm lying? What's happening? And I said to her, why are you telling them that? That's not true. I noticed that she had had my phone with her and my phone had been broken. I started ripping at my phone. I don't really know how this happened, but it set off an emergency call to my mom because she was in my emergency contacts and she answers. It's very muffled. She's like, hello, hello. I start screaming at the top of my lungs. I was like, mom, I'm with Sadie. I'm not actually with Emily. 
she's hurt me. She's attacked me. I'm with these two guys. They hurt me and they attacked me. You need to call 911. Mommy, I'm going to die. Please get me help. My mom starts screaming back and she's like, where is my daughter? And what's going on? And this guy is like, give me the phone. I hear that someone's screaming. Where's my daughter? This guy that called 911, he walks over to me and he's like, I don't give a fuck what you have to say. Something is wrong. You can hear this girl's mother screaming. I think that she's telling the truth. I don't know why we aren't believing this poor kid. And I hear him just on the phone communicating with 911 dispatch. At this point, everything starts to get very blurry. I'm having a really hard time breathing because I was hyperventilating and I collapse. As I collapse, I guess I have multiple seizures. Next awareness I had was being put onto the stretcher and being taken into the ambulance. And I was very much in and out of consciousness. My friend, Sadie, she was trying to leave. As soon as I had fallen down to the floor, she just ran away and ditched the scene. The EMT, I guess, ran after her and was like, you're not leaving. You can't do that. They were saying to her, what did she take? What was happening? And she was like, she just smoked weed. He's like, she did not smoke weed. From what I can understand, they gave me Narcan. I was becoming more responsive. So I think the realization that this drug test is not going to show weed became very obvious to them. He explained to her, we gave her something that she would not have responded to if what you were saying is true. Her heart rhythm is not normal. Something is physically very wrong with your friend. And I'm not sure if you're grasping how serious that is, but if you genuinely didn't do anything wrong, you need to tell me right now so that I can help her. She was like, no, that's not true. And he starts paging the people at the hospital and is like, I need everyone to know what we're bringing in right now is an active crime investigation. I need police to meet me at the hospital. You guys need to make sure that you keep her friend away from her. Collect as much physical evidence off of her body. This is a crime investigation. They put me in the room. They separated her. My mom was not called by anyone at this point, but she was aware of what was happening because she had heard the phone call and me screaming all of those things. And she called 911. She called her best friend who was a police investigator. They are calling every 911 call center anywhere in the area loosely describing the situation until she located me. The EMT came into the room. There were two of them and they sat down on both sides of me and both of them were holding my hands. I remember that they were crying. I was on so much medication. I had tubes that were helping me breathe. I was attached to fluids. They were just sitting with me until my family found me. They had told my mom to prepare herself. This could go wrong. Right now she's stable, but she suffered an overdose and the effects are not good. My mom walked into the room, my brain lit up, and then I started to cry. The amount of love, it makes me want to cry thinking about, but the amount of love that was just generated off of one person, she just took over the room. Police had come and they talked to the EMTs and my mom. My mom was like, we're pressing charges. They walked into the room and they asked me what happened. It was probably one or two in the morning at this point. Several hours ago, I had just almost died and I still had oxygen. I was still connected to a bunch of things and on medication. I just said, and I quote, my best friends would never hurt me. And so my mom was like, I'll go talk to her. And she was like, Alexa, like you called me on the phone. You were terrified. You told me that they attacked you. But I was actually more terrified of my mom finding out the truth than anything. 
probably because of the years of abuse, but I thought she would be so disappointed in me if she found out that I had been being physically and sexually and emotionally abused. So one of the doctors went over to my mom and was like, her toxicology screening came up. There's no weed. It's K2, which is synthetic marijuana laced with opiates in overdose amounts. And I think there was something like eight or nine different substances that came up. Throughout the night, I'm hallucinating so badly. Psychosis just kept getting so bad. I was hurting myself because I was hallucinating and I wanted to get out of the hallucinations and I was so scared. I didn't really understand what was happening. I was like, I need to go to the bar. I haven't been there in a few days. I rip my IVs out and I go walk to the door to go to the barn. It's literally midnight. The doctor, she has the security officers come and grab me, pin me down and tie my arms and legs to the bed because she says that I've been hurting myself. This could be dangerous for other people and working with me. So she has them give me a sedative. That was probably one of the most traumatic parts about it. She didn't believe me and was telling me I was attention seeking. I woke up a couple days later in the psychiatric part of the hospital. Throughout this entire time period, this was four or five days, the police had been calling my mom, asking her what she wanted to do. And she was just like, my daughter's been in critical condition for days. She's not well at all. I don't know what happened. I remained in psychosis. It was diagnosed as drug-induced psychosis, but I had lapses where I would be like completely lucid. So I stayed in that for three weeks, maybe a month. And then I developed a dissociative disorder. I got diagnosed with derealization disorder because I just kept saying afterwards that things didn't feel like they were real. I got diagnosed with PTSD with psychotic traits. I would have flashbacks. I would fight my attacker, but no one would be there. I had a delusion that I was trapped inside of a coma and I had to kill myself to get out of it. I made multiple suicide attempts. For months, I was in and out of the hospital and my mom was trying really hard to get me in treatment. But what would happen is that as soon as I would come out of it, I would be like, I don't want treatment. What do you mean? Nothing's wrong with me. Because when I was okay, everything was completely normal. About six months later, I ended up in the hospital. This time in particular, one of the doctors, he said that he doesn't think an admission is going to benefit me because I've been here so many times. I keep coming back. He wants to send me home. My parents are like, that's great. I want her to come home. But one of the other doctors, she tells my mom that they have to do something. And she decides that my mom needs a break. So they're going to put me in respite care. Respite care is through the foster care system. She decided it's not fair to my parents anymore, even though my parents love me and want to be there for me. So they send me home with this woman. She was very nice. I was not allowed to talk to my mom at all. She had strict instructions that if I got in touch with my mom, she had to hang up the phone. I didn't have my phone on me because they take it away in the hospital. She could let me have maybe like a one or two minute call to just say goodnight. But if it's anything more than that, she has to hang up. If I would start crying on the phone, it would be ripped out of my hands. I remember that making me feel so lonely. Every day that I was at her house, I would just watch Hannah Montana episodes. She had a DVD player. I had no access to the outside world. I could never sleep. I didn't eat for days. I was there, which wasn't very long, but it was long enough. I had journal entries from the time I was in the hospital where I wrote victim impact statements and imagined myself being able to give them in court. I imagined the day where I could look them in the eye and tell them, fuck you, I know what you did to me and you're not getting away with it. I wrote these impact statements 
of what would I say if I could look them in the eye and I could tell them how much they hurt me and how much I have changed because of this. So I started to look at trials that were similar. I terrified myself of the legal system. The defense side is going to attack you so badly. And I knew my suicide attempts, my psychosis was going to be pulled out. Everything, like I would be questioned to no end. What if they try to say that I lied to police and I misled the investigation, then it turns on me. I wasn't going to tell anyone. My mom had brought it up to me, but every time she brought it up to me, I would freak out and have a flashback. I think my mom was just like, I don't even know if I can keep my kid alive. My kid is in and out of the hospital. I'm not pushing that. I care more about my kid being alive than I care about the punishment of these kids. So that kind of took out of their hands that they could press charges. About six months after it had happened, Sadie reached out to me and told me that she was so sorry. She knew something was going to happen, but she didn't quite know what. She believes that Steve and Andy took it way too far and that they thought that it would be fun to kill someone. She's so sorry and that she's been diagnosed with PTSD and she wakes up every night screaming at the top of her lungs and is going through so much therapy. It kind of brings me to the other person that I was talking about. All of the abuse that went on with John led me to not having very high of a self-worth. I don't want to put any blame on myself because I was a kid, but I just thought it was normal to have these relationships. But as a consequence of that, I dealt with an eating disorder, which started during the time that I was with John. I was always getting told I was so mature for my age and became addicted to the fact that I could shrink my body down to a size that looked very childlike. I do grieve for that kid that really had no way of protecting herself and didn't understand. So that grief kind of took over my life. I got sicker and sicker and sicker around the time that I was 1920. I developed a phobia of putting anything inside of my body. This consisted of food and medication. I had yet another mental breakdown that I needed to be in the hospital for and I stopped eating completely. I would end up in and out of the hospital because I needed to have my electrolytes replenished. My parents basically didn't know what to do with me. Eventually it spiraled to the point that my therapist was going to petition the state to get legal custody. My parents could hospitalize me so that I could get a feeding tube placed and I would just not die. My parents weren't thrilled about that idea. They would do anything to save my life. At my sickest, I ate nothing and had to be hospitalized. At my best, for like several months, I was eating three to five foods, the same foods every single day, and that was tremendous progress. I was diagnosed with something called ARFID, which stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, and it's commonly seen in childhood. People will joke that it's the chicken nugget kid. I felt invalidated by this diagnosis. I would just look up these videos of people that have ARFID, and it would be just a bunch of people that like, I can eat 40 foods. My experience was I can eat nothing and I end up in the hospital literally every week to get my electrolytes fixed. And then the pandemic hit. I decided I was gonna try eating more. I didn't end up needing to go to the hospital at that time. As soon as I got myself a little bit medically better, where my doctor approved me to go back to exercise, I started to run. I'd always been a runner and running had been something that was taken away from me. And then I started getting better and better at it, started to do workouts again. And I decided that I was gonna hire a running coach. My parents made a deal with me that if I decided to go to treatment, I could get a running coach and they would help me fund that. 
I went through 12 weeks of treatment. At the end of it, I hired this running coach. She was absolutely phenomenal and she helped me to really develop myself and who I was. Around this time, I decided that I was gonna start posting on TikTok. It would just be little videos of me trying foods that I hadn't tried and that I was scared of, which was every food. I needed me through a screen when I was that sick. I needed to not look up a YouTube video and see someone that is years and years away from where I could ever imagine myself being. I needed to see that rock bottom representation. And I found that experience to be really validating to be able to like educate on this topic that had affected my life. I found this community in a time that was so isolating. I felt like myself again. And then I was immersing myself in the running community and I got interested in competing for the first time really in five years after the initial trauma almost being killed. I saw this world where I could live outside of it. I decided to go back to college. I got into a school close by. My mom just joked and she was like, why don't you email the track coach at school? Why don't you see if you could be on the team? And I was like, because it's a division one team and I'm not good enough. My mom was like, wouldn't it be so cool? Like if you could take your power back and you could get on that team. So I was just like, what do I have to lose? And I emailed him. He allowed me on the team. And I am so thankful for the opportunity he gave me. My coach is the most amazing person ever. I absolutely love the program I'm a part of. In August, we returned to school for preseason for cross country. And this is going to be my first cross country season ever. Now, I struggle a lot with the gun in running that goes off to set off a race because I was threatened with a firearm. So as much as running has been this amazing outlet for me, and I'm so grateful for it, I have struggled a lot with the trauma. A gun is going to go off and then you are going to go as fast as you possibly can. I can kind of think of a few situations that my brain can relate that to. As much as I've tried to work through it, I think the first year that I was doing it, it was so much like I have to prove myself. It was terrifying. And I started to struggle extremely severely with panic attacks. It felt so embarrassing. I have some of the most incredible teammates and all of them were super understanding, but they didn't know what was going on. It was like, maybe if I spoke up about this, I would feel some sort of validation and then that would allow me to be able to perform again. Part of the reason that I feel like I'm struggling so much with performing is because I am living essentially what felt like a lie. My TikTok page, it didn't have a lot of followers. I gained a few people from my trying fear foods videos in September. I made this video. I was just like, hey, so I was the survivor of a pretty heinous attack. Maybe one day I'm going to talk about it. I'm not sure. It had 15 likes on it. I was like, cool, 15 people have seen this video. And I moved through my life and I didn't post on TikTok for another few months. Then one day I was struggling so, so much because I have been having panic attacks. Part of that is because I'm not able to be open and out there about my trauma. Then I read a story about a girl being murdered and the story was very similar to me. So I decided to make a post again. When you are a survivor yourself and you read an experience similar to yours where the person actually did die and now has massive media coverage. What if she had had someone be a voice for her? That was kind of plaguing my mind. I need this part of my life to be out there because it feels like this giant secret. So I was just like, okay, I'm gonna make a video. And as soon as I make this video, I'm hitting post. I'm going for a run. I am not looking at my phone again, a single time. I posted the video, I put a lock on the TikTok app so I couldn't just click on the video. 
went out for my run. I ran five miles. I came back. I went over to my grandmother's house and then it was nighttime. And I was like, oh, I wonder if anyone's seen the video. Like it probably has a couple likes, maybe five or six by now. I opened up my phone. It was at 200,000 views. So I was like, oh my gosh, that must be a mistake. And so I refreshed my phone. But the second I refreshed my phone, it was at 300,000 views. The comments are all demanding a story time. My heart starts racing. There's so many comments and I'm just like, oh shoot. I keep refreshing and I'm getting thousands of followers. People in my comment section were telling their own stories and telling me something similar happened to their child or people that were like, wow, I'm going to be more aware because of this, or I know what to look out for in signs of sexual abuse. Those people were the people that I cared about. I watched my platform grow. In the search bar of the TikTok app, it says Lexi Weinbaum case. I go to Google and I type in Lexi Weinbaum. I notice that as soon as I type in Lexi Weinbaum, Lexi Weinbaum case pops up. So I clicked on it. And it's just like a bunch of different forums already with my name. Like, does anyone know who this girl is? A bunch of people were telling me to write a book. And I've always loved writing. That's something I'm super passionate about. And I've been writing the quote unquote book for a long time about what happened. I want to get into more of the inner workings of my brain and how much trauma does impact children. To just have created this community that's safe for victims to share these stories and to heal themselves is all I could have ever wanted. And it's something that I never imagined. I wanted to be able to speak up and be a voice. The vast majority of survivors don't see criminal justice. And that's unfortunately the reality of our system. That doesn't mean that these people should not ever use their voice and talk about their experiences. To come from a place of being that abused child that is so broken and believes that they don't have a place in this world, to actually take up space on the internet around a very large amount of people who actually care and are finding comfort in my story and validation in their own stories is just such an amazing healing experience. It wasn't really until I got into my 20s that I stopped feeling guilty and it was so eye-opening and then it just turned from like grief and guilt to disgust. I am a division one runner and I go to a good college. I'm studying psychology and I'm going to do all of these cool things. It's something that I am so thankful for. You are one of the most resilient people I have ever met. And I am so thankful that you even gave me a portion of your story. I know you could never have encapsulated everything you've gone through. I'm in awe of you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. I do not remember anything for roughly two years after my accident. I have quick snippets of experiences, but for the most part, I had to rely on my family to see me through my initial recovery. I just didn't know anything. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.